Okay, it says it's live. You got a report for us on it? Or no report? Uh, I need to click on uh, Bible study. Oh, go ahead. Thank you. I forgot all about that. Okay. Okay, we're going to get started. Jim, you got to read. Aleph. 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 Strong, power, leader, ox head. Aleph. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. They have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. All right. Good stuff there. Blameless. What is blameless? I'm not I want sure. to hear your definition of blameless. Well, it depends on what the word is because they translate different words differently. If it's tamim, then it means without spot, pure, uh, uh, undefiled. But I don't know what the root word is, and I'd have to check. So. Well, it's, it's called Elizabeth and Zacharias blameless, too. That's right. So, But I don't know if it's the same word. Well, that would be in the Greek. So yeah. I, I honestly don't know without checking. I mean, that's the best I can do is say blameless means without you know, flaw or spot, but I don't know that without checking well, it. I read somebody that said it, to the best of their abilities, they were... Absolutely, it's like Job. He's a man blameless before God, yeah, same yeah. thing. And yeah. so, but, you know, the different words that we translate the same, that's why it's really important to make sure that we look at the, the word to find out, because, you know, when you go through what we just went through, the first eight verses, he said decrees, and mine might say statutes, and then they just... People don't want to plagiarize, so they start changing things. It has basically the same intent, but I would agree with you. Doing your best before the Lord, just like Job would. And uh, anyway, um, all right, I had something. I don't remember what. Well, uh, oh, one th that's what it is. We got a note from uh, Jonathan, who was here, the uh, missionary from England. And he just wanted to thank everybody at the Superior Word and uh, he, uh, welcoming him and uh, uh, the offering we gave him and uh, he said that we were also very refreshed by the good Bible teaching. <laughs> they must have come on a different day than I was here. I don't, <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyway, it was very nice, and I want to let you all know that he was very appreciative of his visit here. And uh, he friended me on Facebook, so I couldn't have offended him too badly. That wonderful guy. Just a wonderful guy. Okay, today is January 7th. We'll read this, and then we'll uh, say a prayer and get into the class. New year here, isn't it? Good stuff. And we got Burke back. He's in good shape. He's in, still in pain, but uh, he's uh, going to get checked out tomorrow at a doctor, so we're thankful for that. Um, okay, January 7th, his life was changed by an ugly car, a pretty girl, and Mr. Pridgen. By the age of 13, Johnny Hunt was already heavily abusing alcohol. His mother worked two jobs to provide for her family, and Johnny capitalized on the lack of supervision by getting into all kinds of trouble. When he was 14, he found a fake ID and gained entrance into the local pool room where he began playing pool five to eight hours a day. Johnny dropped out of school at 16 and was hired at, as the manager of the pool room. His first car was an old beat-up junker that was so ugly he was embarrassed to be seen in it. So instead of driving it, he had his friend drive him home from work each day. One day, when his friend was in a hurry, he dropped him off a few blocks away from his neighborhood, where Johnny saw a beautiful girl twirling a baton outside her house. After that, Johnny asked his friend to drop him off there every day, hoping to catch a glimpse of her as he walked by her house. 
His strategy paid off. They met and were married within a year. His wife, Jan, soon began to talk about their need for church. Johnny was trying to be a good husband, but going to church was not a part of the plan. Then a guy named Mr. Pridgen began coming into the hardware store where Johnny had taken a part-time job. As Mr. Pridgen paid for his purchases each week, he would tell Johnny how Jesus had changed yet another life and invited him to the church. Week after work, Johnny was hounded by both Jan and Mr. Pridgen. He finally gave in. They began attending Mr. Pridgen's church, and after a few weeks, Johnny was surprised to feel the Lord working in his heart. Things began to change. I went to church, and everything seemed so fine uh, as long as there was preaching or singing. But when the pastor would say, we're going to stand together and sing an invitation hymn, I would begin to weep. While others bowed their heads in prayer, I eased out a handkerchief and would wipe my eyes. During the morning service on January 7th of 1973, Jan noticed his tears. She questioned him, but he didn't have words to describe what was happening to him. That afternoon, Janney, Johnny asked Jan whether she was interested in attending the evening service and added, Jan, you know that I've tried to clean up my act, but I have failed. Well, if Jesus can change my life, he's welcome to it. She could hardly believe her ears. That night, when the invitation was given, Johnny went forward and put his trust in Jesus. Now, before I go on, I understand that a lot of people don't like hearing this type of thing. It's not scriptural to walk down the aisle and give your life to Jesus. I hear this a lot, okay? Well, the Bible mentions breakfast, doesn't it? The Bible mentions scrambled eggs. Or I'm sorry, the Bible mentions eggs. And the Bible mentions, uh, you know, eating. It mentions all three of those things. But it doesn't mention scrambled eggs. And so it's not scriptural to eat scrambled eggs. It's not unscriptural, but it's also not scriptural. In other words, God doesn't define how you come to the Lord. So I'm not here to argue semantics. If this guy met the Lord by, you know, putting his faith in Jesus in his car driving home after church, and then made a public profession of it, that doesn't bother me at all. So I just want you to know that in advance. Just because something is not in the Bible does not mean that it is unscriptural. It just means that it is not scriptural. Not scriptural means it's not in the Bible, and there are not scrambled eggs in the Bible, okay? So uh, from that moment on, Johnny Hunt was a changed young man. He went to his old hangouts sharing with, did I uh, skip a part of it? No, I didn't. Um, uh, hangout sharing with his old friends what Jesus had done for him. When a skeptic asked him, what are you going to do now that you're saved and going to heaven? His answer came easily. Take as many people with me as I can. To achieve this goal, Johnny decided to become a pastor. He finished high school, attended college, and then seminary and became a Southern Baptist pastor. After years in the ministry, he still has the same message. Jesus took me from the pool room to the pulpit and he changed my life. He can change your life too. He often prays, thank you, Lord, for rescuing this wayward son. Thank you for that ugly car, for that pretty girl, and for Mr. Pridgen. Have there been circumstances in your life that God has used to draw you closer to him? You may not have realized it at the time that God was working in your life. Thank him for where he has brought you and where he will take you. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, Psalm 23, 6. So there you go with that. And uh, once again, I just, you know, I understand that people want to have things in a set way and they want to, that's not in the Bible, so we shouldn't do it. But there is no structure for a church in the Bible. You're not going to find it, okay? Other than the uh, requirements for a deacon and for the elders, you're not going to find any of that. You're not going to say you have to meet at this time of the week or that your church has to be this shape or none of that's in there, okay? We all have things that we do 
as traditions. As long as those traditions do not get elevated up to the level of Scripture, let them go. Um, there we go. When so you would have to think, though, that if he said to his then wife that if... Jesus wants to have me. He believed. That's what I'm saying. He was already a saved person. He already knew that. He wanted the church to know it. And so, however churches do that, that's fine. You know, there are people that come here and they want to pull me in back and tell me that, you know, I, I met the Lord and I, how do I, what do I do? And I said, well, if you met the Lord, you're saved. There's nothing you need to do in this church. So, uh, it's just between you and the Lord. But if a church says, you know, come on up and give your testimony or your profession, go ahead. What about the First Corinthians sixteen one? I don't know. What about it? It says on the first day of the week that they aside this gift. Yeah, but that doesn't say in the church. What else would it mean? Well, they're just setting money aside. They're setting money aside, and then they take that and gather it together, and maybe that's when people get paid in in Greece. Okay, I have no idea. Okay, <laughs> and yes, they do meet, but if you're going to use that as prescriptive meeting in the church to give money and set it aside, then what does Paul say in Romans 14, 5? One man esteems one day above the others, and you know what I'm saying? So he, he does not say we have to meet on Mondays or first day of the week, Sunday. He doesn't say that, but he does say to set something aside on the first day of the week. So unless he says, come to church and, you know, give to the, you know, he doesn't. He just says to do that. And so, and, and I understand that, but it, what what was happening at Corinth as well? When were they meeting? I don't know. On the first day of the week, which is implied in that verse. But does he tell all churches to do that? He's talking to the Corinthians about getting a gathering together, a, a uh, amount of money together for who? The church in Jerusalem. Are we supposed to do that every week? There you go. So obviously what he's saying is not prescriptive to us. He's giving a prescription to the church of what to do with that money, and they happen to meet on that day of the week. But he tells us elsewhere that if you want to meet on a different day or any day or all days of the week, you know, individually, that's your choice. Well, Sir so. Roto would probably like that. Oh, absolutely, because here they are in Israel, and they got a church that meets on the Sabbath, and then they go to churches that meet on Sunday, and they're visiting here, and they're meeting on uh, Thursday, which nobody has Bible study. So I, all I'm trying to say is, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but what they were collecting for doesn't have anything to do with what we're collecting it for. You know, we give it to Isaac in Uganda or somebody in Kenya or whatever. And at the same time, you know, some churches do meet on Mondays. Some churches meet on Sundays. And, and so we got that freedom. There's nothing specific about that. So, okay, we got to get into Galatians. Oh, wait, we got to pray. Yes, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to meet in your presence and to uh, share in your word. And uh, there are people that are certainly uh, hurting right now. We got Burke, who is in great pain, and yet he came to Bible class, and we're thankful for that. But we hope that uh, the doctor will be able to help him out tomorrow. And we've got Tom in the back that's got some bodily ailments that are bothering him. We're very thankful for the new year with Kathleen, who attends on Sunday, that she's in good shape after a bad fall last year. And uh, we're just very grateful that she's able to come to church each week. And that Rick is with us after a quintuple bypass surgery just a few weeks ago. So we have these things to be thankful for. We've got lots of other prayers in our hearts and on our minds. We've got uh, my friend Becky out in Colorado still has a lingering sinus infection, her and her husband, and we pray for them. So the list could go on and on, Lord, but you know these people. You know all of us and what our, our failings are as far as our health or our finances or whatever else. And so we just trust, entrust them to you and ask that you look over them. But more than anything right now, we would ask that you would help us to carefully handle this word and to uh, just do what's right with it. And if something is not right that's taught here, that that would be 
brought to our attention so that we are safe from having doctrine which would infect somebody improperly. And we pray this, that you will be glorified, and we certainly pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's see here. We are in Galatians 5, and now we're starting in verse 7. So, you're running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Okay, this one says, who hindered you? That one says, cut you off? Is that what it cut says? You cut you off? This cut one's in on you. Cut in on you. Okay, well, they both sound about the same, hindered or cut in on you. Um, let's see here. We've got uh, the previous paragraph dealt with the Galatians receiving circumcision, which would negate the freedom found in Christ. We better go back and, yeah. why don't you go back and read five. a few verses? Because, so, yeah, it's been a while. Freedom in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by yoke of a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Mm. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Who, you who are trying to be justified by law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, but by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then seven, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Okay, you were running. I like that one actually better there. You were running a good race. This one says you ran well and then hindered. That one is you're running and somebody just cuts you right off. So I, I, I like the way that's termed. I don't know what the Greek actually says. but Oh, yeah, cut cut in. That's a, absolutely. I mean, there you go. Um, because that's who's doing it is the Judaizers. Yeah. Okay, here we go. The previous paragraph dealt with the Galatians receiving circumcision, which would negate the freedom found in Christ. Now Paul abruptly puts forth this sentence. It comes from his pen almost in gasps, as if he's utterly confounded by what has transpired. His first words are, you ran well, or how did that one say it? Uh, you were running a you good were, race. You were running a good race. Okay, you ran well. This is a common metaphor in the New Testament, that of a runner in a race. Paul uses this again and again and again. We have a race set before us, and the finish line should be our goal. And what is at the end of the finish line? Salvation. Salvation. Well, actually, that's already happened for these um, people. Eternity with Christ. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking of Jesus, because it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. We're just eyes ahead. That's, that's it. And so that, they, that is our goal. But you're right. Salvation, you know, the, the fruits of our salvation. But to me, it's all just Jesus. Whatever is coming in the, the glory that lies ahead, if Jesus wasn't there, it wouldn't be worth anything. It just wouldn't. Um, in the case of the Christian race, our goal is, oh, here it is, to fix our eyes on Jesus and concentrate on him as we continue with each step. Now, you know, the uh, New King James Version, that's Hebrews 12, too. Uh, you know, uh, that's where it's at with me. That's my number one verse in the Bible. I, I absolutely love that verse. But, um, uh, boy, that's a long chapter there, 12. It says, uh, this one says in the New King James Version, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But the New King, or I'm sorry, the NIV and several others say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And I, to me, it's more determined. And I just, I love the way those seven words are set. And uh, so that's when I start getting off track. I, you know, let's 
fix our eyes on Jesus. Anyway, concentrate on him, which would be Hebrews 3 verse 1, as we continue with each step. Unfortunately for the Galatians, this worthwhile and proper goal was impeded. Now think of it. They were saved. Paul gave them the gospel. They were all saved. And it's Jesus. Man, this guy has saved us. We, we don't, you know, we're, we're free. We're going to heaven because we believe what God has done. And then somebody comes in and completely misdirects their eyes, completely takes them off of Jesus and says, we got to go back to the law, which Jesus fulfilled for the Jewish people. And they're not even Jews. They're Galatians. So uh, anyway, and so he asked next, who hindered you? Or as he said, who cut you off? who hindered you from obeying the truth. The word translated as hinder, I'm glad that I put this in here because I was wondering, you know, if I had put this in here. Translated as hinder is explained by helps word study. It means, here it goes, properly cut into, like blocking off a road. So that's very good over there. Hinder by introducing an obstacle that stands sharply in the way of a moving object. Okay, that's a guy named Souter who gave that. And then figuratively, sharply impede by cutting off what is desired or needed to block hinder. So there you go with that. So either translation is exactly the same thing. One is just more paraphrasing it, but it's the same thing. They have been on the right course, meaning the Galatians. They have been pursuing Christ and then they were cut off, having their course redirected. Their eyes were no longer on Jesus, but instead on observances which had been fulfilled by him. They had lost their goal because they were pursuing not the end of the law, meaning Christ, but the law itself, which is the whole point of Christ's coming, is to fulfill the law of Israel, to set it aside with the new covenant, and to give people the peace that comes with knowing that you are not no longer being imputed sin, and the sin that you have committed is not counted against you at all. So, you know, the whole thing is just a very tragic thing. You know, one of my friends recently, he uh, emailed me just this past week, and I didn't realize this. If he had told me this before, I had forgotten it. But he says, I was misdirected by the Hebrew Roots Movement. And uh, uh, I don't know how much or, you know, but he, he emailed me, and it was a nice long email, and he just kind of threw that in there. And I didn't realize it, but that's what it is, is you just get misdirected. There's no way you could go to the Bible and come up with that type of theology if you just simply read it and went through the book of Galatians in its context. There's no way you could come, could come up with that. But unfortunately, most people don't read their Bible at all. I mean, I'm talking about the whole world. I'm not talking about individual Christians. But then you get people that read select parts of the Bible, or you get people that start in, uh, who was it? Somebody just... Um, Anyway, um, they start in Genesis, they get to Numbers, and it's still kind of, I'm sorry, they get to um, Exodus, and it's exciting. It starts getting a little hard to understand towards the end of it, and you get into Leviticus, and you, it, it, it's just kind of throwing you around. W what's going on? And then you get to Numbers, and all of a sudden you're completely lost because you've got just detailed numbers and numbers, and unless you like numbers, you just get lost in it. And you put the Bible down, and for the rest of your life, you pick it up when you're in a bad position, you read a psalm and you feel better, and then you put the Bible back down, and you've just been overwhelmed by something. But if you just take the Bible and read it, just as a book, and not try to understand it all, eventually you will get to the book of Galatians. And you'll, if you pay attention to what you're reading, you will come to no other conclusion than Christ has fulfilled the law, and let's not get misdirected from that, okay? I, I, I'm not sure how that happens, but it does, and it happens to a lot of people that were maybe went to school when they were in a Christian school or they went to church when they were young, they heard about Jesus, got saved, and then all of a sudden they're believing these things about getting into Hebrew roots. 
and you got to start observing this and you got to observe the Sabbath and do that. And I, I just don't understand it. But the goal of the book of Galatians, as long as we are in here, I will continue to talk about this issue because that is the primary focus of the book of Galatians is not getting misdirected from Jesus and going back to the law. By pursuing the law, they could never reach a finish line. They had stopped obeying the truth of Christ and they had been deceived into, believe it or not, the lies of the devil. This isn't just some human thing that somebody's come up with. This is what the devil wants. He wants us to be, scripture to be twisted. What did the devil do every single time that he encountered a person? He twisted the scriptures. You know, he didn't say those aren't the scriptures. He took them and he cited them a little bit wrong. Just enough where, you know, he took the word of God. There weren't even really scriptures written at the time in uh, the Garden of Eden, but it was the word of God and it was pronounced to Adam. And it was just twisted enough. He actually threw in some truth in there, right? Yeah. You'll be like gods. And what does it say at the end of the chapter? They have become like us, knowing good and evil. So he didn't lie there, but he twisted the intent of what God was saying. And that's the problem is that we allow ourselves to get misdirected because we don't pay heed to scripture. I uh, was talking to Jim before we started today. And I think I added this into Monday's sermon. I think I did, which means it'll come out in 10 weeks. And if I did... Or maybe I just dreamt it because, you know, I, I go through things in my mind, but it may be the opening. may not be. I'm trying to think. Anyway, um, I was talking to Jim before classes that somebody gave me a CD to listen to. And uh, I mentioned this to you, didn't I, Sergio? I think I mentioned it to him, too. Somebody gave me a CD to listen to. And so um, I finally listened to it. And they asked me what, uh, you know, we want to compare notes on it. And instead of just saying, well, this is wrong. I went around it and I asked direct questions about what this person had said. And I'll tell you, he, it, it's a, a CD on dispensationalism. And for the first 17 minutes, this guy was spot on. I mean, literally, I'm thinking, he said that so well. It was so well worded. And the things he was saying was just wonderful. It was very, very good introduction into how dispensations work. And then he got to um, Paul. And he said, and his examples were, well, you know, we're not told to build an ark, but Noah's told to build an ark. So obviously that has nothing to do with us, except that it's in scripture and it's teaching us something, but it's not something we need to do. And he gave these examples like this. It was very well laid out. And when I say that, it was something that a very uninformed person that didn't know the Bible at all could hold to and say, oh, I get that. It was just very well laid out, clear and without a lot of technical detail. Okay, he got to Paul and when he met Peter. And he said, now, Paul, he said, Paul knew what the apostles were teaching. He knew what they were teaching. Okay. And that's why he was persecuting them. Everybody got that? Paul was persecuting the church and he knew what they were teaching. Would everybody agree with that? Okay. You're, you're persecuting somebody because you disagree with what they are teaching. And his next words, and for the next five minutes, he went from Doctrine Drive and he made a right turn down Heresy Highway. It was that quickly. He said, that proves that Peter and Paul are preaching a different gospel. That proves it. And so instead of accosting this person and saying, this is wrong and here's why, I went, he cited, for example, Matthew 10, where Jesus went to the lost house of uh, you are to go to the lost shape of Israel. You're not to go to the Gentiles or blah, blah, blah. You're to go. To the, okay. And he said, first thing he said, which was completely untrue. He said that was at the end of Jesus ministry, right before his cross. 
when in fact it was at the beginning of the ministry, right? He's sending out his apostles, okay? And so from that point, I, I asked her, instead of telling, because I want people to think this through, if you tell somebody, they may not assimilate it. If you give them a little quiz, then I said, what, what dispensation was that in? When he said that, regardless of when it happened, whether it was five minutes before the cross or at the beginning of the, um, you know, his work, what dispensation was that? Was it law? Was it grace? You tell me. So she'll come back and she'll give an answer. And if she says right, then it's law. And then I gave her Jesus' words from Matthew later, where he says the exact same thing. I was not sent to anybody but the lost sheep of Israel. He's, it, he says basically the same thing. And I, I said, tell me what that verse says. All I wanted to do is cite that verse. Well, if he uses that logic that the apostles are preaching a different gospel, because he said specifically, see, they're preaching a different gospel than Paul, okay? If that's true, then what Jesus is doing has nothing to do with us as well, right? Because we, uh, who commissioned Paul? Jesus. Jesus. And if Jesus commissioned Paul, and he said that I'm not to go to anybody but the lost sheep of Israel, then that means that Paul is disobeying Jesus, right? Okay, so you see, there, there's a problem there. And then my next question was, and I, I, I'm telling you this so that you can think through how to ask people about their own uh, doctrine when they come to you and ask, a, instead of telling them, because then they may or may not go check it out, and they may say, well, you're just wrong. Let them check it out. So my next question to her was, um, how did I say it? I said, if a Jehovah's Witness does not believe that Jesus is God, which they don't, right? That's their doctrine, okay? If that changes and he comes to believe that Jesus is God, what was the avenue, or I put in parentheses, or the vehicle which made that come about? Somebody here answer me. How did that happen? Spirit. Well, the Bible. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, but more specifically, he had to get that from the Bible. Somebody may have showed him in the Bible, but it came from the Bible. He didn't just accept it because he's already rejected that, okay? Does that prove that there's a different gospel? Absolutely not. It doesn't prove anything. It just means that he didn't believe one thing, and now he does. Paul knew what they were teaching. He just didn't believe it. What he started teaching is no different than what they were teaching. But you see how a very, very little bit of yeast introduced in there, and all of a sudden he's got a heresy that he's teaching in the middle of, believe it or not, five minutes later, he's back into some of the best doctrine I'd heard again. Very clear doctrine. But he's introduced something into his theology that those people that are maybe, you know, they've never heard the gospel before, they are now believing a false gospel. Those people will not be saved if they believe there are two Gospels. Okay, I want you to understand how careful you have to be checking out the Bible. Because his presentation was flawless, it went into five minutes of absolute terrible doctrine, and then it went back, or actually heresy, and then back to flawless doctrine again. Be careful what you believe. And that's what Paul is asking them to do. They've been introduced something that is completely contrary to what Paul told them, and what Paul could show them right from Scripture, Old Testament or New and this is what they believe. So we have to be careful with these type of things. And like I said, what you might want to do when you are telling people about their doctrine that they have asked about, rather than giving them the answer, is give them things to research themselves. And I think that will help them more. You know, if I had just gone back and said he's wrong and here's why, she may or may not accept that. I don't know. But if she has to answer those questions, 
by checking them out herself, she's going to come to only one conclusion. That must be wrong. Oh, and one other thing I gave her was, let me read it to you. I said, what does this verse here say? I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is where the gospel is. Okay, he gives the gospel in verses 3 and 4, which that guy gave, by the way. He actually gave right in his uh, presentation, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Yeah, yeah he, he, he gave it right out of here. So he's giving the right gospel. But by then, uh, what's that? By Paul, yeah, which he's a Pauline. He, he believes that only Paul holds the gospel that we are saved by. Okay, but then it says, um, uh, where is it? Verse 11, I asked her, what does 1 Corinthians 15, verse 11 say? And who is he referring to? Now, she's going to have to do a little bit of studying, but her answer is going to be Peter, okay? Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Well, who's he been talking about? Peter and uh, what's the other guy who was with um, uh, right there at the end of it? Peter and somebody else that he was with, okay? He, he's going to come to no other, she is going to come to no other conclusion that Peter is giving the same gospel as Paul because that's what it says, whether I or they. And that's who he's referring to in that, and he just got done giving the gospel. Well, so they jump right over. Oh, well, I understand that, but I'm, that's why I'm asking her to, to, to answer that question. If she does that, she can't come to any other conclusion. Once you've been trained in improper doctrine, the only way you're going to get that out is by actually going to the Word, like the Jehovah's Witness did, and said, oh, I believe that Jesus is God. It's not going to come any other way. You're going to have to go to Scripture. Hedico, come here. I, I, we need to do something really quick. So while you're doing that, come up here, and then um, I'll finish reading this. By pursuing the law, there could never be a finish line. They had stopped obeying the truth of Christ, and they had believed been deceived into the lies of the devil. You have to come up next to me because they need to see this. Because are you, are you, I don't know if they can see that. Yes. Okay. We want to thank Lisa over in Australia. She sent us a couple of shirts. And so I, she made sure that they were matching. And Lisa, thank you very much. They went through Charlie Missy at Grateful Saints. And so they're very nice. And so thank you, Hidako. She's, I don't mean to embarrass her, but I, I really wanted to thank Lisa for that because it was a nice, nice gesture. Of her. Yes, I wish I did. Okay, so I got a life application and we'll go on. Um, if you are not pursuing Christ through his finished work, then you are not pursuing Christ. That's all there is to it. There is no going back to the law to pursue Christ. Seemingly pious words such as, I am observing the Sabbath because the law says I should, and Christ would be pleased with that, are utterly ridiculous. Christ is pleased with faith in what he did, not in what you do. Please understand that. It's not what you do that will please God. God is pleased when you say, I appreciate what Jesus Christ did for me, the sacrifice he made and all the work that he did in my place. And I received that. I believe that gospel message and I want to appropriate that for myself. God is pleased with that and nothing else. Okay. Five, eight. And wait, let me, let me turn there because I didn't have that open. Go ahead. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Absolutely. That one says the one, this one says him. Okay. Uh, this persuasion is referring to the words of the previous verse, which noted that the Galatians had been hindered from obeying the truth. They were walking on the proper path and had been knocked off that path and onto a wayward one. That is what the deceivers come in and they do. They want to steal your joy. They want to rob you of your focus on Christ, and they want you for themselves. That's what they want. Paul notes that this was because they were persuaded to do so. In this, he uses a play on words. In the previous verse, he used the word pe, pe which is translated as obeying. 
It means to persuade or urge. The Judaizers had actively persuaded the Galatians to lead the proper path. In this verse, he uses the word peisimoni. It comes from peitho and means persuasion or conviction. But it is used only of self-produced persuasion rather than relying on him who calls you, as Paul says. They trusted the voice inside as a response to the aberrant teachings of the Judaizers. They had willingly rejected the leading of the Spirit in order to follow the lies of the devil. The words from him who calls you are in the present tense. This is contrasted to that used in Galatians 1.6, which said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. They had been called by the Spirit of excuse me, <clears throat> they had been called by the Spirit of God and had responded to his calling. Now they were responding to the false teaching of mere men. And so we can learn a valuable lesson from this verse. In the words, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you, there is a note that anyone can be called by God and respond to the simple gospel. Anyone. But it does not mean that they will continue down the proper path after that day. Instead, they need to listen to the Spirit. As the Bible is written, it is the words of Scripture which call out to us. As the Bible says that the law is fulfilled in Christ, then it is done. And I would hope that people in this class would at least accept that I teach this. Even if you don't believe it, I accept that the Bible is our authoritative word from God. I don't believe that there is any other authoritative word coming from God, from any pastor that stands in the pulpit, from anybody that claims divine revelation, from anybody that's had a dream or a vision. I do not accept those things, okay? I get sent a lot of them throughout the week, every week. People will send, and you know, I had a dream about this, or I had a vision about that, or God spoke to me about this and that. And 99% of the time, I just hit delete, okay? Because I don't have time for it. And secondly, it's not true, okay? You may have had a dream, and God spoke to you in your dream, but it wasn't God speaking to you. It was your dream you had God speaking to you, okay? That's what happened. It wasn't God speaking to you, okay? And there's a difference. But... Um, uh, I, this, this word is all we need for our life and practice and doctrine. We don't need anything else. If God has spoken to you, you know, I think you should turn around and go witness to that person and the next day that person dies, that's great. But that's not a doctrinal thing that you're going to go telling people God is going to do something, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. God may put something on your heart to do something. He may, uh, you know, have you, uh, you know, you need to give money to this particular thing and come to find out that's exactly what they needed to make their month's payment, okay? God did that. He put it on your heart, and he knew that it was going to happen, and so you can feel reassured that he was working through you. I have no problem with that. But when it comes to doctrine, this is all I believe in. Now, you might not accept that, and that's fine, but I want you to know that that is what I believe, is that the Bible is our soul and authoritative word to understand who God is and what we are to do within our life structure as far as our relationship with God. Okay, so... The Holy Spirit will never call one to be obedient to a law which is annulled. I'll say that again. The Holy Spirit will never call a person to be obedient to a law which is annulled. So if a Hebrew root, roots person comes up to you and says, well, you need to be doing these things. Well, who gave us the new covenant? 
the Holy Spirit through Jesus, okay? Jesus is the one who gave us the new covenant. The Holy Spirit is the one that's telling us about that in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit who gave us this Bible that says that the, the law is annulled, it's obsolete, and it's set aside will never come back and say that that is not correct and you need to observe the Sabbath or you need to not eat pork or any other thing like that. He will never, ever contradict this word. If somebody is coming to you with a doctrine that they say is correct, you need to go to this word and you need to determine from this word alone, nothing else, okay? Um, <clears throat> he will only call one to cling to the grace of Christ alone and any other precept which follows after Christ's finished work. The spirit is not confused, but anyone who observes any precept of the law fulfilled by Christ is confused. They have willingly deluded themselves and have turned from the truth. And that is what Paul is referring to right here in the book of Galatians. They've willingly done this. Life application, don't be confused. Hold to the grace of Christ alone for your salvation and for your continued walk towards your heavenly home. Thank God for Jesus. And once again, last page of the Bible, how does it end? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And make sure you go to church on the Sabbath. Amen. No, it doesn't say that. Okay. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That is what God wants. And he wants us to know that so badly that that's what he closed his word on. That's, that's how intently he wants us to know. And think of this. This will be uh, when I finish up the uh, Revelation commentary. My very last comment on Revelation 22:21 will be think of the honor that the Lord has given to man. Who wrote that last verse of the Bible? He did it under inspiration, inspiration John, but John. John, he allows man to write out his word. Imagine that, the honor that he has given to us. This is the, the God who spoke the universe into existence and he uses us to speak out his word. That's like unbelievable. What? Oh no, the tablets were to make the theological point for us. That's right. And so Moses did not. No, but Mo, he did speak through Moses, the right, book of Deuteronomy right. he did, but you're right. The ten, that that's right. That's right. exactly right. right. Okay. So, but he was making with the Ten Commandments, the solid Ten Commandments, he was making a theological point there, is that the law cannot be fulfilled by man, but it can be broken by man. Okay. And then the next, and we saw that a week ago when the second set of tablets were made by who? By Moses. God made the first set, Moses made the second, and the Lord wrote on them both. So he's making, it, he's making these points with us. He's teaching us lessons if we're willing to learn. Okay, we are in verse 9 now. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Okay, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Okay, I like yours better. The word lump, I've never liked that, talking about bread. I'm sorry, it just doesn't... Uh, anyway, uh, she's over there laughing. I just, you know, there are certain words that I just can't stand hearing. You know, I, does anybody else have that? Certain words you hear and you're just like, I don't, anyway, okay, that's, what's that? Yes, there's words. Oh, well, yeah, there, you don't want to hear those at all. But yeah. I mean, they're just, they're just certain words that I just don't like hearing the sound of them. I don't know, maybe I'm weird. Okay, <laughs> she's laughing again. Okay, five, nine, at least three different major explanations for Paul's words have been given for these words here. The first is that this is speaking of the doctrine of the Judaizers reinserting the law as a means of obtaining justification before God. Paul is given the gospel, that is the, the loaf of bread, or the lump of bread, okay? And these people come in and they introduce yeast into it. The insertion of one small aberrant doctrine, such as circumcision, 
will lead to another and another until the whole congregation is corrupted. The second is that there was already among the believers at Galatia a certain tendency to conform to rites and customs in their spiritual lives and that they had simply substituted old rites and customs with something else according to the teachings of the Judaizers. This is what has happened throughout Christianity, especially in the RCC, with the merging of pagan customs with those of the true faith. Okay? The third option is that the false teachers themselves were being compared to leaven. They had crept in and subtly pulled away the believers from Christ and towards themselves. This is not unusual in churches at all, and it quickly leads to aberrant branches of Christianity like King James Onlyism. You want to use a King James Version? I have no problem with that at all. But that is not a doctrine of salvation, and it is not a doctrine of importance to me at all. It's a marginal translation at best, just like most translations out there, okay? But these things creep in, and is that what that's talking about? Th those are three options that have been given. As Paul has been con speaking consistently throughout the epistle about the introduction of false doctrine by the Judaizers, this is probably, most probably, what he is specifically referring to. But, as a proverbial saying, the premise holds true for each of the three possibilities above. Once a little yeast is introduced into bread, it quickly permeates the entire loaf. The doctrine of the Judaizers is introduced and the whole loaf expands, okay? It is with false teachers and bad doctrine. Just a tad of either can lead to catastrophic results within the body. Life Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, life application. Stick to the word. Stick to proper context when evaluating the word. Don't get swayed by goofy doctrine, self-seeking teachers, or anyone who claims they have a special insight into Scripture that nobody else has. Further, stick to the grace of Jesus Christ alone. Do not insert precepts from the law into your walk. If you do, you will certainly be brought back into bondage and you will have set aside the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, go ahead, Jim. Question. Yeah. Um, this verse is uh, in quotation marks in my book. Okay. I see no footnote. Well, that's, it's probably quoting something from the Old Testament and I don't know why they did it. Or it may be, as it says, a proverbial saying. I don't know if it's in quotes here, but if it is, then that would be why it is. Let's see. Different ver versions are going to do that differently, and I do not know why they've done that. What verse was that? Nine, right? Um, no, that one's not. So, okay, well, then that could be. He's citing what, and it does say that in 1 Corinthians. I was going to, as a matter of fact, mention that, because 1 Corinthians 5 is where the guy with the sexual morality is, they said, get him out, a little leaven. So they may be doing that because they're referring back to 1 Corinthians, even though they didn't cite it. Now, when I said there, and I want you to be careful, because I've done this myself, okay? Uh, I said, don't get swayed by goofy doctrine, self-seeking teachers, or anyone who claims they have special insight into scripture that no one else has. One time when I was walking with Jody out in the projects, and we were talking about doctrine, and she said, I'm always skeptical when somebody says, you've never heard this before. And she says, but you say that from time to time. And I always don't feel the same way I do with other people. And there's a reason why, and I know she never thought it through, but there's a reason why. It's because when I introduce something that I say, you're not going to hear this anywhere else, I always say the same thing. I could be wrong. I did that with uh, especially Jonah, the book of Jonah. When I came to my final conclusion, I said, there is not a single translation that translates this the way that I'm going to translate this. And I'm reticent to even tell you because it goes completely against everybody else. 
I qualify those things because I'm not here to tell you I have a secret insight that nobody else has. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that this is something new you've not heard before and I could be wrong. And you're not going to hear me say something and claim that it's right when it could be wrong, especially when I'm bucking against all the other people. And so I hope that's uh, uh, the resolution to, because she said that. She says, I've never felt that way with you and it made me feel good. But at the same time, I just kind of, we kept on talking and I didn't really think it through. But you got to be careful when somebody says, I've got this insight or you've never heard this before because there's a guy out there that teaches a lot on sp the spiritual side of the Old Testament. I won't give his name. I'll have 15,000 emails and everybody will be angry at me. But people are always sending me his stuff. Then I'll listen to the first five minutes, tell him where he's wrong on that, go back and I'll say, I don't listen to this guy. I've been sent his stuff 55 times. Every single time I have, it's been wrong in the first five minutes. I don't need to go on. But I give him the first five minute correction. You gotta be careful with people that are claiming special insights. And this guy's really, really popular, by the way. He gets sometimes millions of views. But, and I'll, t I'll say this without giving his name. It doesn't matter if somebody says, they have a doctorate in theology. It doesn't matter if it says they know Hebrew and Greek. Those things don't make any difference at all. We've gone through the fallacies before. Those are source fallacies, other type of fallacies. What matters is if it matches the Word of God, and that's all that matters, okay? And if I'm, if I'm not 100% sure of what I'm telling you, I always will tell you that because I don't want somebody to get something in their head and think, well, this is what Charlie said. Yeah, but he said it with a qualifier, okay? All right, fight, and I'm not bragging about that. I'm terrified. I'm terrified of teaching false doctrine or even bad doctrine. You know, yeah, we should be. That's what James says in James 3, 1. Brethren, not many of you should purpose to be teachers, knowing that you will receive the stricter judgment. Now, I might not have quoted that exactly, but I take that seriously. I, you know what? And I, I uh, wanted to translate the Bible uh, for Wycliffe into other languages, and I thought, Lord, that's one of the scariest propositions I will ever consider. And, you know, Hidako, she got me out of that because she says, I really don't want to go overseas again. And so we stopped the training and, and uh, I told Wycliffe, I'm sorry, my wife doesn't want to go. And I married her before uh, I, I signed up with you. So, uh, and it turned out for this instead of that, but uh, that's good. But it really, it, it truly terrifies me to think that I have taught something that is incorrect. And so, and I hope everybody here would feel the same way about your own talking with people about Jesus. Please be careful with it. Okay, 510. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty. Okay, is that it? Whoever oh. he oh. may be. Okay, and you kind of stopped and I thought, I'm sorry about that. Didn't mean to cut you off. This reads completely differently. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. So it says the same thing, but it's completely different. It's it written completely differently. Okay, this verse begins with an emphasis on I in the Greek to show Paul's certainty in what he is proclaiming. Okay, sometimes you see an emphasis like that and you think, well, you know, in, in, when somebody says something, I'm talking about in English, I this or I that, and they're emphasizing it, they're, they might be bragging. That's not the way that it works in the Greek with Paul. When he's writing, I, he's being adamant. That's emphatic, you know, like, um, uh, and you get the point. I know you do. <clears throat> this verse begins with an emphasis on I, Paul, in the Greek to show Paul's certainty in what he is proclaiming. The thought laid out here is based on what he has just said concerning the fact that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. They had turned from the truth and were faced with the introduction of sin. 
a verse before that, he had told them that this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. And so his words, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, show his certainty that they will turn and do the right thing towards the one who calls them. They will reunite with the truth and go down no further, will no longer go down the destructive path that they have been following. He honestly feels that the case he has laid out is sufficient to wake them up and redirect them towards proper doctrine. Okay. On the other hand, <clears throat> excuse me, he must address still the instigator of the apostasy. And so he says, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment. This person will be dealt with according to God's judgment. It may be that such judgment is to be pronounced by the Galatians, such as in expulsion from the congregation. Or he may mean that God will reserve this person's judgment for the Bema seat of Christ, assuming he is saved. Either way, judgment is to be rendered for the flagrant abuses he has perpetrated against the doctrine of grace which is found in Christ's finished work. Finally, he finishes this thought with whoever he is. The person will go unnamed. It may be that Paul knew who he was, or it may be that he had no idea who he was. But, it's, but his words bring in the contrast between that person and the Galatians. That person is the teacher. He's the one that James 3, 1 is war warning about. And these people here are the ones that have been duped by that person. They have fallen into sin because bad doctrine is sin. Okay? But he is more responsible for having led them down that path. Okay? Nobody gets away unscathed from sin. Now, when I say sin in this, okay, I'm talking about... In the new covenant, we are not imputed sin. Everybody should know that. I say it almost every Bible class. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, God is reconciling the world to himself, not imputing men's sins, or NIV says, not counting men's sins against them. If you don't have law, you don't have sin. It is You can't have sin imputed where there is no law. In the new covenant, there is no law. There are commandments that are to be obeyed, and if they don't, you're not being imputed sin for it. There's a difference between law and being told to do something and not doing it with, with law and without law. The Bible says to do this or to don't do that, and we're the ones that will harm ourselves in the process, okay? But we're not being imputed sin because if we were, we would lose our salvation, and we'd be going through that constant cycle of being saved, not being saved, and never knowing if you're going to die in a condition of being saved or not being saved. God is not going to do that to us. He is not imputing us sin. We are saved in everything. You know, that guy, I'll get good point he made, okay? And I've used the exact same point. It was like he had listened to some of my teachings, which I doubt, but he used some of the same things. And the one that was going along fine in his talk and then went on heresy highway and then went back fine again, he said exactly the same thing that I say, is that if you are told in the new covenant to not, you know, steal, and his example was rob a bank. I always go with adultery, but we'll go with his example this time. You're not to steal. And you go in and rob a bank, and somebody will say, well, he can't be saved. Well, sure he can, okay? You can be saved and rob a bank. There's nothing that says you can't do it, okay? You're not supposed to, and you're not going to be imputed to sin for it, but you, there will be a certain number of consequences. One, you might get shot. Well, I use adultery, and I say you might get shot. It's the same thing, you, you know? Either way, you are the one that is doing the offense, and some of you will say, well, that's not true. You can't be saved and do one of those things. My question is always the same when they bring that up. Did David do that? The answer is yes. And was David saved? 
Yes. And did he remain saved? Yes. But what happened? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. He knew he was saved, but he had lost his joy in the process. Okay? And, you know, he can't be saved. He killed somebody. Well, guess what? David killed somebody, right? He didn't do it actively with his hand, but he, it, he, was, he was the one that commanded it to be done. All right? So we have to be careful about what we look at and then consider the consequences. The consequences are that you might get shot. You also might end up in jail. You might harm your testimony before other people, on and on and on. And finally, yeah, you've got to stand before the Bema Seat of Christ, and you have to account for all the things you have done in this life, all of them. And if you're out robbing banks as a saved Christian, you will have to account for that. Why did you do that? It doesn't mean you're not saved. People get so off on track. If you say that you can't be saved because you have robbed a bank, that means that your salvation was dependent on what you did and not on what Jesus did, right? It's not. Your salvation is only based on what Jesus Christ did and nothing else. If you believed what Jesus Christ did, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. If you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, you were given a guarantee. If you have that guarantee and God reneges on that guarantee, then you can make a claim against him, which is something that no man can do, okay? Now, if somebody says you can lose salvation by killing, then where is the bar? Where what, is the bar? What can you... That's right. How can, can you, you sin and not yeah. be, and then still be saved? What, That's right. What is the bar? There is no bar because you are not being imputed sin. There is no bar. The only bar is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is it. There is no other bar. Very well said. Okay. Okay. Um, where was I? Um, he's going unnamed. Paul's optimism concerning this is life application. Did I read that? Um, I'm going to read it again. Paul's optimism concerning the restoration of right doctrine to the Galatians should be a hopeful reminder to us that there is also a chance that those who have departed from right doctrine, think of somebody you might know right now in the, the Hebrew Roots movement, that somebody who has departed from right doctrine in their own lives will be restored as well. However, it won't happen all by itself. It requires someone, maybe you, to open the Bible and to show them the error of their ways. As I said, that someone may be you, okay? This is our responsibility. And as I said, you know, I've done this to other people before, but I've never been so careful because this is somebody that I really like. They gave me that CD. And I don't know if she believed it or if she gave it to me to, to question. I don't know what the reason was. But I did listen to it in between. You know, I always listen to audio Bible while I'm driving. And I switched, the Psalms ended, and I was about to go into the next book of, uh, what's that, Job? No, Proverbs. Um, uh, Proverbs, thank you. And so right in between there, I slipped that in. You know, I don't like interfering with my Bible. I don't, I don't. But I did it for her sake, and uh, rather than giving her that, I really want her to find the answer herself. And that's why I ask the questions, and she can come to the conclusion. And if she doesn't, we'll talk about it. But I, I just feel so bad when that little bit of yeast that Paul is speaking about in this verse gets introduced into something was otherwise a really, really good sound message. The salvation message was great, but if they're sitting there believing that there are two gospels, I'm not sure if they believed in the right Jesus or not. It all depends on what part of that sermon they picked up on because you cannot have a false gospel introduced and come away unscathed. You can't do it. All right, 5.11, wait until I turn there. Um, make sure we get, okay, go ahead. Brothers. If I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Hello. <laughs> In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Okay, this one, very similar, except the, the offense of the cross has ceased. Okay, but abolished is a little better. It's like getting obliterated. Anyway, 5.11. 
There is an emphasis here intended to bring in a stark contrast to the false teachers with the words, and I. This is immediately followed up with brethren. He's speaking to saved believers. He is, yes, he's speaking to them as saved believers and those that he was in fellowship with. His contrast to them is to show them that he has their best interests in mind. If this is so, then those he is contrasting himself with don't. He is their brother in right doctrine. They are the enemy in false doctrine. His next words, if I still preach circumcision, are taken by some that he once proclaimed that circumcision was a necessary part of the faith and that he had now changed his position on that matter. No, this is unlikely for several reasons. First, the book of Acts shows no such change in position. Secondly, he was instructed by... But no, he was instructed by... No, 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 no. Jesus. I'm talking about since his conversion. He was instructed by Christ on his doctrine, and Christ does not change. Third, though he circumcised Timothy in Acts 16.3, which all of the legalists love to use as an example that you have to do these things without taking all the rest of the Bible in context, it was for a special reason and not out of compulsion or a necessary doctrine. There is no reason at all to assume that Paul ever proclaimed the necessity of circumcision in regards to salvation. So that can't be what he's speaking about there. Rather, those who saw that he had circumcised Timothy might have thought that he was setting a precedent for all others that he preached to, or yes, or they may have seen that he lived as an observant Jew in order to win those under the law, which he explicitly says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20. It may also be that his early teachings before becoming a Christian concerning the law were being recalled by those who knew him then. Or it might be that the false teachers may have simply maligned Paul by stating that he once proclaimed circumcision, but now did not. So it could be any one of those or something that I didn't think of. Whatever is the case, the record supports Paul's doctrine of salvation by grace through faith apart from circumcision. And that applies to Paul himself because he was circumcised and he was unsaved. And then he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. There you go. And it had nothing to do with his circumcision at all. It was solely an act of grace. Okay, so he couldn't have been preaching it because he never experienced that ever. Okay, it was apart from circumcision during all of his time as a believer in Jesus Christ. In support of this, he asks, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Vincent's Word Studies notes that the first use of the word still refers to the time before his conversion. He then notes that the second still, which is given, is not temporal, but logical. One thing logically follows after another, but in this case, the logic was skewed. Where could the Jews and the false teachers find fault in him and persecute him if he were teaching that circumcision and thus adherence to the law of Moses was necessary? The answer is that they could not, but they did, thus confirming his stand against such things. As Charles Ellicott says, the two things are alternatives. If one is taught, there's no need for the other. Very logical. And this is exactly what his final point is. If I were not being persecuted, then the offense of the cross has ceased. 
his gospel presentation was that only, only the merits of the work of Christ culminating in the cross of Calvary were sufficient to save a person's soul. This was an offense to those who held that the adherence to the law of Moses was necessary. You see the logic there? If Jesus Christ died and that is the only merit that we have, think of the Roman Catholic Church now because it's the same thing as these Judaizers. If that is our only merit, then everything else doesn't matter. And the Roman Catholic doctrine loses all, all of its footing, all of it. And the Hebrew Roots Movement loses all of its footing. And the Judaizers at Paul's time lose all of their footing, every bit of it. If that is what our salvation is based on, then nothing else matters. And that's what Paul is saying. So you either have this or you have this, and you don't have anything else. There is no other option. What are you looking for, Burke? I see you looking for something. I'm going to say something here. No, go ahead. You, you mentioned that uh, it was Paul's teaching. Yeah. Paul always teaching to believers. Yes. All the, all the books that he wrote are to believers. To believers, that's yeah. right. Yeah. But you, you say that he, Paul was telling them as a believer, but he did it in every book. Every book. Well, that's right. But he initially taught them as unbelievers. The books are written to them as believers, yeah. but he taught them. He's the one, I, I am yeah. your father in Christ. Yeah. So there is a point where they were unbelievers. So yeah. we have to make that distinction there. But you're right. All of his books, he's, oh, and John too, you know, brethren or my brother or whatever. They're all doing the same thing. But there had to be a point when they met the Lord. And at that point, he was as a father to them. Now, okay. The, the stumbling block in this verse. Okay. Does yours have stumbling block in it? I think it's probably the word offense. The, cross, it, it, the offense it, it here. It says that they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. That that's they right. They stumbled over the stumbling, stumbling block. block. That's exactly right. That, that's in Romans uh, 9. And so Paul is consistent all the way through. You're not going to find error in Paul's doctrine. The only error you're going to find is in our understanding of it yeah. and our incorrect teaching of it. But you will never find an error in what Paul says. You're absolutely right. The stumbling block. And once again... I always ask the same question, what is a stumbling block? Is it some giant thing like that chair that I walk into and fall over? No. If I see that chair, I'm going to do what? I'm going to walk around it. A stumbling block is something so small and so insignificant that it's, you know, when we're in the projects and we're on the concrete walkway and it's next to an oak tree and all of a sudden it lifts up in a week or two and it pops that's a stumbling block. You don't even know it's there and you've been walking that path every week for 15 years and all of a sudden you stumble over it. You wouldn't stumble if you knew it was there. That is what a stumbling block is. It's a little thing, but it may be the most important thing of all. And so we have to be careful. You know, somebody might lose a tooth if their face hits the ground. I know that happened to somebody when he was 14 years old, still suffering with who. it. <laughs> What's that? I wonder who. Oh, I wonder who. Yeah, that's why I never smile. People are always saying, why don't you smile when I'm getting a photo taken? Ever. Because if I do and the flash flashes, it looks like a just a black spot, and I look like a you know guy from Kentucky. Pirate. Yeah, <laughs> no, not a pirate. If I had a patch on, I'd look like a pirate. My boys were born in Kentucky. Uh oh. Well, they have all their teeth, so that's why they moved out of there. Okay, I don't know. I I just use Kentucky because it's far away from Florida. I don't know. If people have their teeth in Kentucky. I apologize right now. Okay. <laughs> okay. Stumbling block. Okay, little thing that gets you in a lot of trouble. Okay, they were depending on their own works under the law to establish their righteousness before God. They were not trusting in the cross of Jesus Christ, okay? 
But the gospel says that God has rejected that approach. To the Jews and to those who feel that their deeds can please God more than the cross, this is the highest of offenses. I like to say it's a big slap in God's face. Imagine that. Yeah, uh, Jesus did everything necessary for me to be saved, but I still need to do more. Yeah, what he did was insufficient. I can do better. So thank you, Jesus, for what you did, but I'll complete it from here. Absolutely not. Okay, it takes away the, their feelings of pride, and it takes away their ability to boast before God. And that's what Paul brings up. I think it's Romans 7. Is that right? No one will blow, no, no flesh will boast before the Lord. Where is boasting? It is excluded. He, he brings that up again and again, as a matter of fact. For Paul to change his mind about the all-sufficient nature of the work of Christ. Oh, let me ask you a question while I'm saying that right there. All-sufficient work of the nature of Jesus Christ. Did the other apostles, after the resurrection of Jesus, teach that you needed to do something in order to be saved? Did any one of them? Is that found in Scripture? Anywhere. So, if they didn't teach that, then what did they teach? That the cross is all-sufficient. Is that the same gospel, or is that a different gospel? It's the exact same. Hyper-dispensationalism is a flawed system because they manipulate Scripture in order to come to a conclusion. And as Jim was saying before, there's a reason for it. Some hyper-dispensationalists are certainly anti-Semitic. They don't want to acknowledge that Jews have the same position that we do. There are other reasons. I have not thought them through, but there are other reasons, certainly, why people teach this false doctrine. But there's one gospel, and all of those apostles were on the exact same page. And when one of them diverted from it, what happened? He got called out for it. Peter was called out by Paul because he got off of the one gospel. All right? I just, I'm, I'm just angry about that, that people will, will present something and say, this is the truth of God in Christ. And then they'll, like I said, they make a right turn right down the wrong avenue, and they start telling you something, and it's subtle. It's very subtle the way he did it by saying that, oh, Paul knew what Peter was teaching. And so that has to be a different gospel. How do you come to that conclusion? But those people aren't going to sit there and think it through because they probably didn't go to a critical thinking course in school because they don't teach that anymore. And so they're just going to say, oh, yeah. And for the rest of their life, they're going to believe that. All right. Well, Peter in uh, Acts 15 says... That's right. They He's like the us. one. And Peter's the one that called it a yoke of bondage. Yep. That's exactly right. Okay, I'll read that again. For Paul to change his mind about the all-sufficient nature of the work of Christ and to claim that adherence to the law was necessary would then take away any need to persecute him. But his persecution in this regard continued right up until the day he died. Thus, it proved that he was being misrepresented concerning circumcision. Rather, he held completely and solely to the merits of Christ as being the means of being justified before God. That is it. The merits of Christ and nothing else. Life, you know, I somebody sent me an email today. Thank you for taking me off of the Revelation study um, email. Somebody asked me, would you send it out to this person, that person? So I did. I added them to the list, and I got an email from one of them today. And I think today is the day that I mentioned the Roman Catholic Church. Did I do that today? Mm. Was it today? I'm just... I, I, just I, mentioned them. Like the, okay. Ago. No, I'm talking about in the Rome Revelation study. Oh, I haven't read it yet. Okay. I'm not sure who was there. All right. Well, recently. I, it, it, that's what it was. It, it, I'm certain that this person was probably a Catholic, and my friend was trying to get her to uh, come out of Catholicism. And, hey, listen, if the Catholics are teaching wrong doctrine... 
they get called out on it. You know, you don't be quiet about the gospel and you certainly don't be quiet about the word of God. So anyway, I said, I said, absolutely, I'll take you off and please have a blessed day. And that was the end of that. But doesn't, you know, that kind of stuff used to really bother me. I'm to the point where it just doesn't affect me at all anymore. Hey, you know what? If you don't want to hear it, that's fine. I, it's out there for free. We don't charge for any of this. If somebody wants the entire commentary on Romans, I'll email them or they can download it from the website. Doesn't make any difference. There, I had a lady email me today about the, the sunrise photos. She's, she's got a business here in Venice and she says, I love those photos. How much will you uh, charge for them. I said, my copyright is you have a right to copy. Get to work. Oh, yeah. I, I don't care. There's nothing that I do that it's not going to get charged for except taking care of 7-Eleven in the mall. Okay. Um, maybe I'll charge he to go for a kiss tonight. I don't know. All right. We'll go on. Uh, rather, he held completely and solely to the merits of Christ as being a means of justified before God life application. The law is fulfilled in Christ. The law is nailed to the cross of Christ. The law is annulled through the work of Christ. If you can't understand this, then you may need to take remedial English. The Bible is rather clear on these things. And I don't mean to be arrogant about that. I'm just being, you know, it's just the way it is. It is black and white. I mean, it's just, it's so basic. And now don't get me wrong. If somebody is taught wrong and this is what they believe, that's fine. They believe something wrong. I believed lots of wrong things, but then what do you do? You go to the Bible and you read it. That's the main thing. Okay, that, go back to the Word. Okay, 512. Let me turn there. Hang on. Just one make. You didn't have the Roman Catholics in the days. You had the scorpions. Okay, scorpions. I must have said something about the Catholics in the past couple days because she, she didn't, yeah, scorpion. Okay, well, Whatever. I just assumed, and I, you know, I typed so many things during the day, it's hard to remember what I typed to who and when, and, and so I thought, that's the first thing I thought when I saw that, is I bet you she, she was mad about something I said about Catholicism. Yeah, and I type them in advance, too, so. Okay, uh, what was it, 11, 12? As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Okay, this one reads differently, and it, it, yours is certainly correct, okay? You got to think through what Paul is saying to these people. Okay, this one says, I wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off, implying, you know, I'm just going to cut myself off. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a certain thing because the entire issue of the book of Galatians is circumcision being the basis for observing the law. And so when he says they need to cut, he's saying just keep cutting. Everybody got that? I don't want to be perverse or anything, but I want you to understand that what Paul is saying here, he's making a point. You want to, you, maybe I'm going to say it. I don't want to get ahead of my company. Works the same today <laughs> yeah. 10 uh, years ago, so yeah. And if it doesn't, I'll add it in. Okay. 512. The words of Paul here are as strong and direct as any, which he could write anywhere else. They are also overflowing with irony. The words, I could wish that those who trouble you are written about the Judaizers, who he has been speaking about all along. They are those who have insisted that the Galatians insert deeds of the law into their theology. As the benchmark for this corrupt teaching, Paul has used the rite of circumcision. That's correct. It is the physically identifying factor of those who are under the law. Without it, then that person wasn't even considered as Israel, much less an obedient Israelite. That is the standard. There is nothing else that is needed to determine, are you an Israelite than that? Now, there are other things 
that they did. But I'm saying that if you don't have that, you're not an Israelite. You were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. You're supposed to bear this as a mark between you and God as a sign, etc. And there's another sign that was given to Israel, a sign, just like circumcision was called a sign. What is it? They were given it. I'll give you a hint. It was in Exodus chapter 16. Well, that's also a sign. Very good. That's another sign. That's from Exodus chapter 12. So it's not 16, but that's okay. Um, uh, it's in Exodus 16, which is after the passing through the Red Sea. He gave them another sign. That was a good one, though. I'm glad you got that. I'll, I'll give you a hint. It begins with S and ends with Abbath. Anybody? Sabbath. Sabbath, okay? <laughs> so there are certain signs that if you didn't do these things, you were considered illegitimate or in circumcision, you were not even considered a part of the, the flock, okay? But Passover also, okay? And Passover is how you would become. If you, will, if you have the person circumcised and observe the Passover, oh, I'm sorry, if you circumcise and blah, 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 then he may observe the Passover. He is as one of you. So that is confirming that you have now entered into the people of Israel. Even though you weren't before, you are now considered of Israel. So there are certain things that you did. But the circumcision is what Paul is dealing with. Go ahead. All those people that was in the desert, they I'm gonna, before they went over. Did, I think I mentioned that Sunday. Yeah, that was a while ago. That was a few days ago. Okay. Yes, I'm so talking about in the sermon. Yeah. Yeah, you that's know. right. But anyways, maybe so they weren't considered Israelites until this happened? Well, no. Well, the people through? in the... I, I can't remember if I said it last Sunday or if it's in this Sunday sermon, but it's, I, I talk about exactly that. Now, they are being used as a type of the generation that is right now Israel, okay? They're being used as like They were Israel. It says they weren't circumcised. They were brought into the hill of foreskins. It was last Sunday. I know it was because uh, I almost stopped and said what that means, hill of foreskin. Okay, it's not the hill where they cut the foreskins. It's the hill that was made out of foreskins. Okay, that's how many people were circumcised. Saying the whole nation was uncircumcised. Okay, you see that? Okay, so they were being used by the Lord as a typological representative of the uncircumcised state of Israel today. And that's why I brought in the fact that Paul, uh, uh, Moses brought in the idea of circumcision of the heart. He's talking to people that are right there on the banks of the Jordan. He says, circumcise your heart. In telling them, because they're not circumcised as Israel. They are not circumcised according to the law. They went through all those 38 years of wilderness wandering, and Moses couldn't have cared diddly about that. What he cared about was their heart. Circumcise your heart. Showing that Israel today, this is what God is trying to tell them today. You are as if you are uncircumcised. Speaking about, I'm talking about the Jewish nation today. They're walking around boasting in their flesh. They're walking around, we're Israel. We're back in the land. We've done this and we've done that. They have no heart for the Lord at all. Okay, that is what is being typologically pictured. And until their heart is circumcised, which is going to take, unfortunately, the tribulation period and two-thirds of that nation to be exterminated before their hearts are circumcised. And they're going to realize, Jesus. It's all in this book, and it's all about him. It's going to take that much for it to happen, but it will happen. Their hearts will be circumcised. They will cross through the Jordan, which is typical of coming to Jesus Christ. The Jordan. Remember the symbolism. Mount Hermon, covered in snow. It's a picture of heaven. It runs down into the Dead Sea. This is Christ coming down. He's the descender. Jordan means descender. He is the descender from heaven going down to the Salt Sea. 
okay, the Dead Sea, the place where he died, and then he rose again. Where does that water go into the atmosphere? And right back to Mount Hermon. He's ascending back to heaven. There's this cycle that goes on in the, the Holy Land. It's a picture of Christ. And what happens? Just, just as I hate to get ahead of myself because it's so beautiful, it's coming. What happens when Israel gets to the bank of the Jordan after Moses dies? What happens? The water stops so they can cross through. Wait for that sermon. If we're still here, you're going to love it, okay? You're going to love it. The typology that is in there, isn't it, Rhoda? It is because she, I sent him a question to Sergio one day and couple minutes later, I still have it. I don't have it here, but I still have it. They sent back a couple of things about it. It's marvelous typology. And I haven't even done the study yet. I mean, they just came back with a couple words. I came up with a couple words. It's a marvelous study, but I'm not getting ahead of myself. I'm not going to do it until we get done with Deuteronomy. But I'm telling you what, when you see the typology of Christ in there, Sergio's first email, I still have it. It says right there, I, I always... I use the same document to start new documents. And so every time I do, when I start a new Deuteronomy sermon, I copy all of that on the new thing. And there's Sergio's words, woohoo! And then I can't tell you what the next word is because the next word will give away half of the sermon. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable what this typology is going to show you. Anyway, so that is what that's picturing. Israel today, uncircumcised, and there's going to be a hill of foreskins, meaning spiritual foreskins when they finally come to Christ. Does that answer the question? Okay. Um, so here we go. Um, I got to go back and find out where I was. The trouble you're written about the Judaizers who has been speaking about all along. They are those who have insisted that the Galatians insert deeds of the law into their theology. Oh, there we are. As the benchmark for this corrupt teaching, Paul has used the right of circumcision. We'll get done with this verse. Good. It is the physically identifying factor of those who are under the law. Without it, then, that person wasn't even considered as Israel, much less an obedient Israelite. The word trouble, Greek anastatao, is an especially strong word which comes from a root meaning driven from one's home. They were turning from the Galatians' doctrine, or I'm sorry, they, the Judaizers, were turning the Galatians' doctrine upside down and driving them from the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. For this, Paul says that he wishes that they would even, as he says, cut themselves off. The word is apokopto, apokopto, and it is found just six times in the New Testament. All six involve the actual cutting away of something, including body parts. His reference here turns on the idea of the circumcision of which he has been speaking. In essence, he is saying that they shouldn't just stop at the foreskin, but that they should go on ahead and emasculate themselves, as the NIV read. That's the NIV, right? Okay. The intent here is to show the utterly ludicrous nature of being circumcised in order to please God over and above what Christ had already done. All of that typology in Deuteronomy and Numbers and in Exodus, Leviticus, it's all pointing to Christ. And the ludicrous nature of saying that this is what saves me, this sign, okay? It's not the sign. The sign is pointing to Christ, okay? And that's why Moses dared to say, even before these people had been circumcised, circumcise your heart. That's the preeminent thing to do. Gee, if you can make God happy by being circumcised, then keep on cutting. Maybe he will be more pleased with additional mutilation of the flesh. It is both ironic and sarcastic. Versions such as the King James Version, which apply this to the person as a whole, 
like or the New King James Version, entirely miss what Paul is saying. They use cut off in the sense of the false teachers being cut off from the Galatians. This is not at all the intent of the passage. Other scholars see the intent as being cut off from God. Again, this is incorrect. Paul's words hinge on the surrounding context, all of which is dealing with the rite of circumcision. A similar thought is found in his words of Philippians chapter 3. Let me see what I have there. Philippians chapter 3, Colossians and Philippians 1, 2. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Here it is. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. He's talking about cutting your body in order to please God. For we are the circumcision. He just proves the word mutilation here is referring to circumcision. We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on and explains why he, above all people, should have confidence and he doesn't have any. Zero in the flesh. He has all of his confidence tied up in what Jesus Christ did. All right. In that verse, he uses a term for mutilation, which refers to the false circumcision of such depraved people. Life application, and we'll be done. Circumcision is of the heart. It doesn't matter how much of your body you cut away. Think of the people in the Philippines every year that take those things and whip their backs and bleed. Muslims that lacerate themselves and people in uh, when we lived in Malaysia, you had the, uh, the Deepavali festival and these people would pierce right through their body, right through their mouth, right through their arms. They'd pierce through their bodies, spears going right through themselves, through their neck and just everywhere. They're trying to please God by doing this. Man, type in that. If you don't believe me, type it in and see. They'll take entire uh, serrated knives, big jags in them, and shove it through their cheeks and the most of ungodly things that they do, and they walk around the streets like that during this, this festival. You think, what are they doing? They're trying to please God. They're trying to get favor with God through mutilating themselves. That's not what God wants, not even a little bit. All right? Um, she knows. Oh, I better not say anymore. I, I, I wonder uh, if any of the Galatians who read these, that last verse, said, like, well, that wasn't a very Christian thing to say. Yeah, I know. Exactly. That wasn't very crazy. That's what he's making an ironic statement about the world we live in today, where people say you can't be a good Christian if you say that. You're citing scripture. I mean, you're citing scripture. All right. Life application. Circumcision is of the heart. It doesn't. I already read that. Doesn't matter how much of your body you cut away. Only reliance on Christ can bring us to a right standing with God. Put away your reliance on deeds of the flesh. Be reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ alone. All right, we'll close in prayer, and then we'll go ahead and head to our happy homes. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful word. It gives us an assurance that we have that grace is sufficient and that nothing else is needed and that no matter what we do after the day that we are saved, we will continue to be saved, but help us to be responsible with that salvation. Help us not to use it as license to do perverse things or things that are wicked or that are harmful to others, but instead to build up the body, build each other up, and build ourselves up in your presence so that we will bring glory to you. Lord, help us never to become prideful, though, in our building up of ourselves, but to look at it as acts of pleasing you because of what you have done first. Help us to have that right attitude and to just pursue it all the days of your life, our life, how glorious you are, and we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me back this up and say goodbye to these folks.
I'm glad you said to put that on by the